Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray before we hear from the God's word this morning. God, please pour out your wisdom upon us. Give us good information to act on. Help us to be loving and compassionate towards those in need. Help us, God, to remember your great faithfulness. Bless us, God, from your word. Help us to surrender, to obey you, to submit to the authority of your scripture and to your sovereignty. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It is with a sense of excitement and anticipation that I bring the word of the Lord to us this morning on this very unique day, perhaps an inaugural Sunday, in the ways that the Lord will lead us and give us wisdom to gather as we proceed into the future. And our text from James this week is all about submission to God and repentance. It is a timely message, I believe, as we have been going through the book of James. This is where our schedule has landed us for this particular week. The text from James that was read, it's an example of lamentation. 
that exists in the New Testament, and it draws as its source many, many examples of lamentation through all of the Old Testament, through the Psalms, through the wisdom literature, and also through the prophetic material. Our world has changed. And all of us are trying to absorb exactly how much our world has changed. Now, I didn't say our world has ended. That's something very, very different. I said our world has changed. If, however, you believe that the world is ending, then these are your words, okay? If you believe the world is ending, these are the words that you need to have, and they come from Revelation 19. It is this, hallelujah. Salvation and glory belong and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. If the world is ending, then that is our anthem. But I believe the world has changed is the, is the best way to put it. And James, James chapter 4 includes one of the most gracious invitations in all of the scriptures. It says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. What a gracious command that is that God gives for us to draw near to him, and it settles one of the most significant things in our lives that needs to be settled, that needs to be resolved. What do you most want to be near to? What is it that you desire most to, to be in proximity of and, and to have and to be in possession of? What is it that you want most? Do you want to be near to God or do you want to be near to the world? Where do you think you will be most safe? Psalm, and, Psalm 73 says this, Behold, those who are far from you will perish. And you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to, to you, but for me it is good to be near God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. One of the questions that people have been asking all week long, including our own staff up until today and this very hour, is where is it safe to gather? And perhaps the material circumstances of our world can help us better grasp the spiritual reality of our need and the desirability to be gathered into the presence of God. And so James says, draw near. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. It is a, it is a great mercy if the circumstances around us helps us to lay hold of this gracious invitation all the more firmly to draw near to God. He is our refuge. <clears throat> Psalm 46 says this, God is our refuge. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea and its waters roar and foam, and though it, the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge. We have the perspective this morning that our world has probably changed in some ways forever. Terrorism changed the world forever about 10 years ago. Maybe it was 20 years ago. 
And it changed habits. It changed patterns in the lives that we've just gotten used to. And in the circumstances of the world right now, we, we are all trying to absorb. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to absorb how much has our world changed. And what will those changes be like? And we have, I think, an opportunity through the word of God this morning to, to lay hold of a change in ourselves. A tremendous opportunity that, that only a few generations have. That we would be changed. That we would be altered forever. That our habits would actually be changed. That the way that we think would actually be altered. The things that we mourn over would actually be changed forever. Proximity to God is what the, most, what, what the devil most desires to thwart. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. It is our nearness to God. Proximity and nearness to God is what biblical faith is all about. In Christ, a way is made for us. This is the gospel. In Christ, a way is made for us to safely draw near to God and to dwell into the presence of the living God. Draw near to me, God says. Be gathered into my presence, into the presence of the living God. And everything else in Christianity, how we live, how we think, how we work, how we play, is all consequential of the nearness of God. Do you know how to draw near? One of the most important questions you could ever ask. Do you know how to draw near to God? Well, it is by grace. It's grace to humble ourselves through submission and repentance. That is heavenly wisdom as opposed to worldly wisdom that James has been talking about through the course of the last chapter or so. Heavenly wisdom as opposed to worldly wisdom is the capacity or the the ability to submit ourselves to God and repent. And I think that's the main point of the text from James that was read this morning in verses 6 through 10. Is that wisdom becomes evident in the Christian's lives through a humility that embraces both submission and repentance. What is it that we submit to? What is it that we mourn over? Heavenly wisdom made manifest in the lives of God's people is the wisdom to submit to God and to mourn over our sin. This is, and all because of our proximity to God. And this is the thing that lies behind quarreling. This is the thing that lies behind uh, our, our jealousies and, and our pride and all of the things that, that drive us apart. This is what lies behind our, our world friendliness. It's not that we don't understand the commands. Everybody understands the commands. Stop it. Don't quarrel. Don't be friends with the world. But what we need to grasp is, is the necessity of nearness. A.W. Tozer described it in an essay that he wrote one time. It says, likeness is through nearness. And there is no substitute for the nearness of God. And, and the way that it, it manifests itself in the life of believers is 
is the, the, to the capacity or the wisdom of submission and repentance. But it's the opposite of autonomy. Autonomy. Let me begin, first of all, with submission to God. James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is a wonderful evidence of grace. See, grace, grace can't be demanded from God. Grace is given freely. But when grace is freely given, grace demands to be seen. In other words, divine grace can't exist in a soul invisibly. It's given freely and it can't be demanded, but once given, it demands to be seen. And grace is seen by submission to God. Grace is seen by our submission to God. And submission to God begins by listening to God. It's so simple. Listen to God. Like Eli told Samuel, just go and listen. Go back there and say, I'm listening, Lord. It's very, very simple. Submission begins by listening to God. And that listening, though, doesn't begin by hearing what God says about us. It begins by listening and submitting to what God, first of all, says about himself. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. In other words, God declares we don't come to God and say, this is what I would like you to be like. God declares who he is. And he says, listen to me. And before we can ever get to the commands where God speaks to us about what to do, we have to get to the word that God speaks about himself and submit to it. This is who I am. This is the God who really is. Listen to me. See, the devil can't destroy God. He can only create lesser gods and then entice us to submit to them. But this is what submission looks like. Listen to what God says about himself and draw near to that God. And the devil, in all of his devices, doesn't care how moral we are, he cares first and foremost as he can flush us out of nearness out into the open and to be submitting to something that is somehow less than the God who really is. Someone told me recently that they were fueling up at a fueling station in their car and an eagle went by and in the clutches of the eagle was something. <laughs> something furry. Uh, yeah, something got driven out into the open and it wasn't safe and now it's being carried away. This is how the devil drives us into the open. The devil can't destroy God, but he does create lesser gods in our mind, designer gods in our imagination, and entices us to submit to them. And that is why worldly wisdom is demonic, as James describes earlier. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And it contradicts the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And it whispers to our pride, it whispers into our rebellion, the rebellion of our mind, that says you would be much better off to worship a God that you create based on your own wisdom, based on your own experience. 
And so James says, submit to God, and the devil will flee from you. Submission to God begins by submitting to what God says about himself. John 17, 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, to know the one and only true God. How many of you turn to Isaiah chapter 40 all the time and open up the wonders where God speaks to his people and says, look at me, what are you going to compare me to? Just listen to who I am. Here is your refuge. Here is your safety. Here is everything provided for you. If you would just listen to me as I really am. I hope you're familiar with the concluding chapters of Job, where in all the perplexity that Job experiences in the end of the book, starting at chapter 38, God does arrive. God does appear. Job does find nearness to God. And this is what God says. Now, who do you think you are? I am not the product of your imagination. I am the God who really is. And that's the God that James calls us to submit to. See, when we, when we hear the word submit, the reason I'm dwelling on this, because I think when we hear the word submit, where our mind first and foremost goes is, well, I must do this, or I must do that. And surely we must, but it's, there's something that is further upstream than the commands of God of what to do. There's a submission to, to what God says about himself. And the devil is perfectly at peace with, with that. If, if all we think of when we hear the word submit is, I must do this, I must do that. Oh, look at me, I'm doing it. Yes, indeed, look at you. Some of us, it's the only kind of Christianity we've ever known. That submission to God doesn't begin with the willpower. It doesn't begin with the will. It begins in the place of a deeper rebellion. And that is in our mind's idea of what God is. That's why Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why Colossians 2 talks about pursuing Christ because in Christ, who is the exalted one, who made all things, that in him is all the wisdom and treasure or the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we take every thought captive to Christ. Submission to God means that if God says that he is something greater than I can ever imagine, if God says he is something greater than, than my mind can comprehend, that we submit to it. And we need the armor of God in order to be able to do that, to resist the devil. Stand strong in the Lord. Put arm his armor that in the day we might be able to stand. One of the most significant and important stories in all of the Bible is from Exodus chapter 3 where God approaches Moses. He approaches Moses and he says, this is who I am. Take off your shoes. Draw near to me. You're on holy ground. I am not the product of your imagination. I'm not something de you determine by your experience. I'm not something that's allowed to be because of your philosophy or science. I am who I am. Take your shoes off and draw near. 
And it's so significant because all the things that Moses was called to do and to be and God was to be for all of Israel demanded that very God. Demanded the God who really is. And so submit to God. No wonder James says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Because it was with hands that idols were made. Psalms talk about this, the Jeremiah, Isaiah, so many places in the scriptures talk about this. And the devil says, you got strong hands. You can make beautiful things with those strong hands. And, and James says, those are the very things that we would create idols with. And so there's no wonder James says, wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Your hearts are attached to the things your hands have made. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Jeremiah 4, 14 says, wash your heart from evil. Interesting phrase, eh? Wash your heart from evil. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Not your wicked deeds, he says. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Because all of our wicked deeds originate from our wicked thoughts. Submit to God. Secondly, repentance. Another component of worldly wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic that earthly wisdom has, it has to do with our sin. It, it either promises us great pleasure in our sin or it advises us that it is safer to cover up and hide our sin than it is to acknowledge it. That's worldly wisdom. You'll be happiest there, or you won't be safe if you allow it to be known. What would, th what would people think if they knew? How would the church respond if, they, if you repented of your sin? It's safer just to, just to keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. It's not safe. And sometimes we reinforce that idea in the way that we treat people who repent of their sin. The church needs to be a safe place to repent of sin. Where the gospel is not only believed, where it's lived. But wisdom from above is, instead of making friends with the world, it mourns over worldliness. It mourns over the, the attachments that we have that's represented by double-mindedness, James says. And it, it mourns over that. It, a wonderful depiction of the end in Revelation chapter 18 where the world is doing exactly that. It's, it's mourning over its loss. But the loss that it's mourning over isn't the nearness of God. The loss that it's mourning over, represented by Babylon, is its trade, is its purchasing power. Who knows what the loss to the world economy is going to be in these few weeks? I don't think it'll ever even be possible to, to calculate what the loss to the world economy is going to be in the next few weeks. The question is, what will we mourn over? Notice the order here, that when James speaks of repentance, that it's something that follows the invitation to draw near to God, not the other way around. 
In other words, repentance of sin doesn't come first and then we're enabled to draw near to God. Submission to and to drawing near to God as he really is is what leads to repentance. It's that proximity. You see, you can't stir this up. You can't manipulate it. You can't, you can't make people feel this way about their double-mindedness or about their sin or about their proximity to the world instead of God. You can't, you can't, well, you, you can try, but it's, it's really bad religion. This can't be manufactured. Repentance can't be manufactured. It, it comes from the proximity of holiness. The gospel message isn't, if you repent enough, and if you get yourself clean enough, then God will draw near to you. Rather, the gospel message is this, is that there is a call to draw near to God in Christ. And that drawing near to God then is made evident by true and real repentance. In chapter 6, Isaiah doesn't say, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and all of a sudden God draws near. It's exactly the opposite. He sees God. He grasps something of the proximity of God. And then he sees something about himself in the proximity of holiness. Peter doesn't say, go away from me, Jesus. I am a sinful man. As a, as a mechanism to try to get close to Jesus. If I, just, if I just feel bad enough about myself enough, then Jesus will become near. The, it was the proximity of Christ to that sinful man that made that sinful man realize that he was a sinful man. And he said, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And you know, that creates humility in the life of a believer. There is no other way to deal with quarreling in the church other than people who are actually living in proximity to God, submitted to the knowledge of God, and mourning over their double-mindedness. And it humbles us in our relationships one with another. What is it that we are to repent of? What is it that drawing near to God creates such a revulsion to? Well, it is double-mindedness. And that brings, I'm sure your mind goes right away to the book of 1 Kings, to the words of Elijah the prophet on Mount Carmel, where the people were dwelling in double-mindedness. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? It's one of the great questions in all of the Bible, isn't it? How long are you going to keep doing that? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In the presence of God, in the nearness of God, we grasp that the two different kinds of wisdom can't be allied with each other. One of them is the plague of plagues, for which we need the only cure, which is the grace of God. The grace to submit to God as he really is, and the grace to mourn over our proud autonomy from God that makes us waffle in between of, of, of two minds, hesitant to declare ourselves. God is the living God. Drawing near to him isn't complicated, but it's serious. And it's the only safe place for us. 
I'm going to read an example of, of Old Testament uh, lamentation that James draws some of his words from and speaks to the church, uh, reiterating the, the same truthfulness of the futility of serving both God and the world. Isaiah says this, he says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts does have a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it will be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and high. Against all the lofty mountains. Against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower and fortified wall. And the ships of Tarshish and their beautiful crafts. And the haughtiness of men. It will be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols, they shall utterly pass away. And the people will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And that day mankind will cast away their idols of gold and their idols of silver which they had made for themselves to worship. They'll give them to the moles and to the bats. They'll enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. See, doesn't that make Christ sweet to us? <laughs> ever been in a storm? Ever been in, in the presence of nature that is beyond your ability to comprehend its power? And imagine in Christ being brought into the center of it and to be safe. And to witness and know all of its power, all of its tremendous majesty, but in complete peace. See, the gospel doesn't change who God is. It brings us into the presence of the God who really is. It's a wonderful thing. Double-mindedness is the enemy of that. Martin Luther on 1517 you may be familiar with his 95 theses that he nailed on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. Ever heard of them, the 95 theses? You know what number one is? Number one. When our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. That was his number one thesis. See, repentance is a gift to the church and the promise of God that he is faithful to forgive us our sins. And one of the lies of the devil is that there is something that can be discovered in us that somehow is beyond the capacity of the blood of Christ, which it is not. An old song by William Cowper that says, there is a fountain filled with blood. Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. See, that's how long repentance lasts in the life of a Christian until 
until we are saved in a way that we sin no more. In other words, when Jesus comes. And we will, one glorious day, be saved to sin no more. Repentance will come to an end. And all that harasses us, all that assails us, all that tempts us will come to an end. All of, all of the, the things that we are, are tempted to, to be drawn to will be removed by the supreme authority power of God but repentance is ongoing in the life of a believer as long as we live and endure until Jesus comes because thoughts about God constantly arise in us that are less than the God who really is and so we repent and we flee to Christ in whom are all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. The conclusion, verse 10, is that God will exalt us. God, the Lord, will exalt us. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word Lord there indicates the authority of God. His authority, he is the one who lifts up, he is the one who casts down. Humble yourself before the Lord, before that God, and he will exalt you. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. The Lord alone has the power to exalt and the power to cast down. It's, it's like a, a paying forward of, of exaltation. In this feast of the world, we take our place at the lowest spot of the feast in order, in the, in the hope and the expectation that our Lord will come along and take us from the lowest spot and to raise us up and says, no, my friend, you, you sit here in the day of the Lord in the marriage supper of the Lamb in the day of exaltation when we will rejoice and sing hallelujah to the Lord. And in all of the letters that John wrote to the churches in Revelation, in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, all of them have these words in them, to those who conquer, to the one who conquers, I will. To the one who conquers, I will. Seven times. That conquering is through submission. That conquering is through humility in this world. And those who conquer, God will give us all the blessings of eternal life by humbling ourselves, submitting to God, and mourning over our double-mindedness. We'll close by reading a psalm. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. My soul waits for the Lord. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of their iniquities. Would you pray with me?
Almighty God. Humble us before you, I pray. Help us to, in a day of hand washing, Lord, help us to wash our hands of anything that stands, that's designed in our life, in our head, in our mind, in our thoughts, that stands opposed to you. Help us by your mercy. Thank you for such a Savior. Unite us to him, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.